Genesis chapter 3, if you want to find that. That's the first book of the Bible, and a few pages in on chapter 3. It's not going to stay open, though, is it? It's not as good. It's not as good. (laughs) Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter, um, but we're going to just focus on... uh, on a part of this, because there's, there's so much in here. Um, this comes after the accounts of creation and the account of creating Adam and Eve, um, which we will refer back to, but then it comes to chapter 3, which says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, uh, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you mustn't touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. This is the very first occasion, obviously, where husbands blame wives for things that go wrong. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to, his, said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He mustn't be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, Genesis chapter 3. Now, many people read the opening chapters of Genesis, not just this chapter, um, but any of the first few chapters, maybe up to chapter 12 of Genesis, and uh, the the immediate question they ask was, well, is this exactly how it happened? 
Is this, is this what happened? Did God really um, make the world in, uh, in, in six days and, and rest on the seventh day? Were they literal days? Did, and, and, they look, and they look and ask questions like that. Was it really two people, Adam and Eve? Is that what their names were? How do we know? And all of those sort of questions are asked. But let me say to you this morning, I'm not going to try and answer any of those questions because I believe those questions are actually red herrings most of the time. Red herrings, something that takes you off down a route um, that isn't that helpful and you miss the main point. And I believe often in the book of Genesis, we miss the main point of what God is trying to say and teach us through this. There's much more important questions uh, than that. Uh, Because the main question is, well, what does this passage tell us? What does Genesis tell us about life and about death and about male and female relationships and about sin and about work and about um, what we should wear um, and lots of questions like that, um, which God is answering through this book. Now, there's much that we could look at in this passage, and maybe we'll return to this again next week and look at some other things in it. But today, um, I want to look at what this passage teaches us about uh, death. I'm really glad you came now, aren't you? Um, I want to look at what this passage teaches us about death. I went to um, Darlington and left my Bible there, um, as as I've already said, on Thursday, and we were looking at the whole issue of death. Now, I'd already felt to preach on this passage, hadn't known exactly where to go with it. But just listening uh, to to what the Bible says about death, just thought this is such an important subject. This is so important that we have a good grasp of what the Bible teaches us about death and uh, why, in fact, we die and where death comes from and what will happen. So that's what I want to look at today. Death is probably the greatest taboo in our society. It's the thing that people really do not want to speak about. And think about. Yet what we think about it, what we know about it, will affect our view on the whole of life and will affect our view of God. Now we might think, well, how does it affect our view of God? Well, I would think that if we are a believer, if we're a Christian and have been a Christian for any amount of time, we will have had someone come and say to us, "Um, well, I'm not sure I believe in God. And you might say, well, well, why don't you believe in God? Well, I don't believe in God because if there was a God, why would he allow uh, so much suffering in the world? Um, How many people have had someone say that to them ever? Why does God? You see, that's probably the most common question that is asked of Christians. Now, if if you're not a believer here today, and I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up, so don't worry. But if you're not a believer here today, you might well still have that question in your mind. Why does, if there's a God, how can he allow so much suffering in the world? Now, that question obviously could cover a wide number of things. It might talk about evil people and, and, uh, and murderers and uh, people who, who do appalling things. All of those things. Now, I'm not particularly wanting to look at that today. I think that the, the Bible does give us answers to that. Um, but that's not what I'm wanting to look at um, this morning. But many people, I would think this is the more pressing issue. Many more people might be thinking, well, actually, what I mean by that, what I mean by that is, why does God allow death? And why does God allow death when it doesn't seem as though it's fair? Why does God allow death in young children? Why does God allow death to those who've not done anything wrong through some disease 
like AIDS. And you might say, oh, well, you know, people, people might have acted immorally with something like that. Yeah, they might have done. But I, I went out a few years ago to Brazil and, and visited an orphanage where there, were peop- where there were children there. All of them had got the HIV virus. They'd caught it off their parents who had, who had died by that point. But they hadn't done anything to deserve that. They'd not acted in that way. So why does God allow these things? Why does God allow death and suffering and natural disasters to happen, such as floods or earthquakes? Now, many of us struggle with an answer to that question. You know, if if you're a believer here and you've had someone ask you that question, it's probably, even though it's the question you're most likely to get asked, it's probably the question you don't want to be asked the most. Oh, no, please don't ask me why God allows, uh, allows death and suffering and things like that because, because we, can, we can be a bit vague about our answers. We can be a bit vague about our thinking. Probably because we, we've kind of discounted what Genesis tells us. And we, we're going to look at, at Genesis 3 today and look and see what it tells us about death. But because we get distracted by these red herrings about, oh, well, did, did God really create the earth in seven days, or six days, sorry, um, then, then when we just think, oh, well, let's, let's forget Genesis. Let's, let's concentrate on the rest of the word. Let's concentrate on the rest of the Bible. No, God gives us Genesis for a reason. And we're going to see that there are um, some things that God has to say here about, about death and why death is in the world. Let's have a look at it then. The passage actually starts, before we get onto that, that topic, the passage starts here with the reference to the serpent. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Now, we can, we can say, well, is the serpent, is that the devil? Is that the devil? Well, there's argument, we're not going to get into the debate particularly, but, um, you know, if it's not the devil, then the devil is certainly at work in and through this serpent. The devil has chosen the serpent to use. Actually, Revelation uh, chapter 12 and verse 9 refers to the devil as a serpent. Um, Revelation and chapter 12 and verse 9 says, um, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. You know, it's a pretty good description then, isn't it, of what, what the serpent is doing here. So the devil, the great dragon, the serpent, he leads the world astray. Well, certainly in this passage that we see uh, he led Eve and, and then for Adam astray. So let's assume that, that we're talking about the devil here, okay, without getting into the, into the full, um, full detail of it. What do we see here about what the devil is like? Well, the devil is certainly a tempter. He comes and he tempts the woman, Eve, with the fruit that God has said, do not eat from this this tree. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, We'll see that in chapter chapter 2. He tempts people. And he continues to tempt people today, doesn't he? He continues to tempt believers and unbelievers today um, with things that look very attractive, but they can mess up our lives. We only need to look at the news on any particular day, and we see people who have been tempted, people who seem to have everything. You know, this week's example is probably Tiger Woods. Next week, it'll be someone else. But, you know, Tiger Woods, this amazing golfer, he's got everything going for him. He's got an amazing house. He's got a, an amazing talent in golf. He's, uh, he's got loads of money. He's got a beautiful wife. And yet, it seems that he's been tempted in different ways. 
And it's messing his life up. And that's the case with everyone. The, 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 the devil will tempt people today. He will tempt Christians. And he's very clever at doing it. God's people will be tempted all the more and tempted to stray away from God. And he's also a liar. That's a dangerous combination, isn't it? The devil is a tempter and he's also a liar. And a very convincing liar at that. And from the very creation of man and woman, the devil has been lying to us. And he continues to do so. Often he'll do it without us even being aware. We won't even know that it's the enemy who's doing it. We'll believe his lies mainly about ourselves and about God. Those are the two main areas where the enemy will, will, will lie to us. He'll lie to us about God, as he did with, with Eve. Did God really say this? Is God really like that? And he'll lie to us about ourselves. That's why it's so vital to know the truth that the Word of God says. Why is the Bible relevant today? Why is the Bible so important? Why is it important that we know, as, as, as children of God, what his Word says? It's important because we can trust that this is the truth. That this will tell us, this God's word will tell us the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. Whereas the enemy will be feeding lies in all the time. Seeking to have us believe him. The serpent here questions what God has said. Did God really say? He doesn't even come directly and go, oh God said this or God didn't say that. He's asking a question. Did God really say? Um, did God really say you mustn't eat from the tree, from any tree in the garden? Now, what's the answer to that question? Did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, we haven't read that passage today, but most of us will probably, if we think about it, realize the answer is no. God didn't say that. God didn't really say you mustn't eat from any of the tree in the garden. Let's have a look at what he did say. Chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17. Let's read from 15, just to confuse Nathan. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. So did the Lord say, you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? No. God said, you may eat from any tree in the garden. Wow, that's a bit different, isn't it? That's a bit different from, you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden. God gives us such freedom. God gives us such grace. God gives us the ability to be blessed in so many ways. And yet we can read it as, ah, oh, yes. But there's a restriction there. And then that can become, oh, we mustn't do anything. God is a restrictive God. That's what the devil was trying to sow into people's thoughts. That's what the devil tries to do today to people, isn't it? You know, people think, oh, Christianity, it's all thou must not. You mustn't do this, you mustn't do that. That's all Christianity is about, people will say. Set of rules telling you what you can't do. You can't have fun, you can't do anything. No, that's the devil telling us. Did God really say? He did, didn't he? God really said, you can't do this and you can't do that. And he's a restrictive God. No. God says, you may eat from any, any tree in the garden, but not this one. Not one. But you may eat from any others. 
There was other trees there. There was the tree of life there. They could eat from that. That was fine. But the only tree that they mustn't eat from is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God is not a restrictive God. God is a gracious God. He gives us good things. He's not a God who's taking things from us. I'll take that, and I'll take that enjoyment, and I'll take that enjoyment. You can't do that, and you can't do this. No. God is saying, here you are. Enjoy. I have created you for life and enjoyment. Enjoy it. So much on offer for us. Enjoy it. That's what God's wanting us to do. But the serpent says no. So he asks Eve this. Now Eve, Eve kind of thinks, oh, well, I don't think God did say that. I don't think God did say you mustn't eat anything. So she says, oh, well, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, uh, but but God did say you mustn't eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you mustn't touch it, or you will die. Where does she get that bit from? You mustn't touch it. God didn't say that. God didn't say you mustn't touch it. Do you see what I mean? It's happening. Extra restrictions starting to come in. Yes, she sees. Oh, no, that's not quite right. Serpent, that's not quite right. You've not got that, you've not got that right. Serpent, the devil knows exactly what God has said. But there's extra, no, you mustn't touch it now. You mustn't eat of it, you mustn't touch it. No, God didn't say you mustn't touch it. He says you mustn't eat of it. But the story goes on. And um, the serpent says, you will not surely die. Because he says, oh, if you eat it, you surely die. You won't surely die. But it describes how Adam and Eve then give in to the temptation and eat of the fruit. Now, I used, to, I used to look at this passage as a Christian, and I used to be puzzled by this. How many, are you often puzzled when you read the Bible? Do you sometimes read it and think, I don't get that. Well, that, that that's, how does that work? I, that's not a bad thing. Some people think it's a bad thing to be puzzled when you, when you read the Word of God. It's good to be puzzled, because it makes us ask questions, and it makes us think about it a little more. You know, so often we can read the Word, and we, and we can just go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, oh, that's fine. Let's stop a moment and, and look at it. Well, what, what's going on here? Why is that the case? Do you know what puzzled me with this passage when I read it? You know, God says, you mustn't eat the fruit of the tree or you will surely die. Eve repeats the same thing. She gets that bit right as she's reporting it back. The devil says, you won't surely die. What I was puzzled with when I read, this, when I read the whole passage, they don't die. Who's, I used to th- who's telling the truth here? Hang on a minute. God said they're going to die. The devil said you're not going to die. You think, okay, well, they're going to die then. But they don't. That's what I, I thought. Hang on, what's, what's going on here? Was the devil telling And you, you think, well, the devil can't be telling the truth. But that's a puzzle. That's not a bad puzzle to have if it makes you look at the passage more. You know, I, I, I think it's great when sometimes people come and they say, say to me, well, what, what? I don't get this. Sometimes I get emails. Now, it's great to work it out yourself. Don't just email me all your questions. But <laughs> it's, good, it's good to go back yourself to the word. But it's great when people are like, well, what does this mean? I don't understand. Because it means people are engaging with the word and thinking about it because God's word is truth. And you will be able to work it out. So anyway... This was my problem. You know, God didn't kill them. To my mind, it was a bit like the, when you get parents. You know, you get parents, and, they, and they're telling their children 
uh, not to do something. So maybe, maybe the children are having their, their, their food at home and uh, they don't particularly want to eat their, their, their vegetables. And the parents say, look, if you don't eat your vegetables, then you're not going to get any, any pudding. Because they're saying it to try and get them to eat it. But then some parents will, will the kids won't eat it. The kids will go, oh, I don't like it, I'm not having it, no. And, and, then, and then the parents will think, oh, well, they've done quite well with the rest of the food. I'll give them some pudding anyway. You think, oh, they said they weren't going to do it, and now they've done it. Um, I won't ask you, parents, which parents you are. Um, but it's, 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 I, I thought, is God like that? Is God saying don't eat it because he just wants to make a point, but then he's not going to follow through? I don't think God is like that. But you see how cunning the devil is. The devil's lies are not the obvious ones. They're not the obvious lies that, that you might get children telling while we're on, while we're on children. My, my son this morning, Joshua, you know, comes down. I say to him, morning, Joshua. He's come for his breakfast. Have you been to the toilet, I say? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I go, really? Have you? Yep. I say, you've not, have you? Nope. <laughs> Joshua, that's a lie. <laughs> it's a fairly easy lie to spot, as soon as I'd heard him just get out of bed and come straight down the stairs. So I pretty much knew. The devil doesn't tell lies like that. The devil's lies are not that easy to spot. Sometimes he gets Christians doubting his word. He gets Christians doubting him. The third book of the Bible. In fact, people do it in the first book, don't they? Oh, I don't, I'm not sure I can believe God did that. First book of the Bible. God creating the world. Oh, I'm not sure about Of course God can do that. God can do anything. Oh, I'm sure God can't do that in six days. Why? He's God. Third book of the Bible. Oh, I think God's a liar. We're doubting him. We doubt it. The enemy has got us doubting God right at the start of the Bible. And so we're thinking, well, does the rest of this make Can I believe it? Because we're questioning it from the start. Of course we can believe God's words. Of course we can believe him. The enemy will try and get us not to. So, it may look as though God has lied and just decided to banish them from the garden. I'll change my mind. Just go out of the garden. That, that'll do instead. That's your punishment instead. I'm not going to kill you. Let's look a little bit more closely. And this is where we get into looking at what death is and, and, and why death is in the word. Because the first thing we've got to get clear, actually, in this is what is death? What actually is death? Now, many of us have got an idea, most of us, I would say, have, have, our idea of what death is, is taken not from the word of God, but is taken from what science tells us. And scientists and evolutionary scientists, people who believe in evolution, and they will tell us what death is. And, and we don't even think about it because they don't say, death is this. We'll just, we'll just go with it because it's the common view of the world. And what people think that death is, is that that is the end. Death is the end of life. Full stop. Termination. End of story. We take death as being like that at our peril, because that isn't what the Word of God says death is. The Word of God, Goth, whoever he is, the Word of God says, the Word of God tells us that death is separation. 
The Bible speaks of death as being a separation from God. A separation from life. The, the body and the soul separating. It doesn't say it's the end. It doesn't say it's the end. So, what's the immediate consequence of Adam's sin? The immediate consequence of Adam's sin is separation from God. Up until then, Adam and Eve had enjoyed being in the garden. It talks about God walking in the garden in the, in the cool of the day. What intimacy Adam and Eve could have had with God and did have. They would just walk with him. They would just be with God. Just that easy relationship. And suddenly sins come into the world. And so first of all, they don't want to be with God anymore. They're hiding. They're hiding from him. God's like, where are you? He knew where they were, but he's asking the question, where are you? Oh, we were afraid. Separation comes in. And then separation comes when God says, well now, you're out of the garden. I'm going to banish you from the garden. No longer have you got this ease of relationship with me. No longer can you be with me in this way. You're going. And there's angels guarding. Separation from God as they walked into the garden. As I've said, the Bible also separates our physical body and our soul, which is important to bear in mind because because physical death is separate to what happens to our soul. Physical death. We see, as we carry on reading in Genesis, so you've got the end of Genesis 3, chapter 4 comes along. What happens in chapter 4? You get Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. What happens? Cain kills Abel. Abel. Death comes in to the, to, the, to the account in chapter 4. Okay, straight away, the first murder. Um, death through free will, I guess. And obviously, death is caused by people's choices today. Many deaths are caused by people's choices that they make, their free will. But we also then see Genesis chapter 5 coming along. Many of us skip Genesis chapter 5 because it, it doesn't look as though it's very exciting. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing out, but Genesis chapter 5, it, it talks about um, God creating man. And then it, in, in chapter 3, in verse 3 of chapter 5, it says, When Adam had lived for 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his image. He named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after that, he uh, he became the father of Enosh. Seth Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, he lived 912 years, and then he died. And it goes on and on and on through all the different uh, descendants of Adam and Eve. And it just repeats that each time. Tells you who they had as children, how long they lived, and then they died. What's that passage telling us? What's that passage telling us? It's telling us people died. Death has come into the world. God said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And now death is in the world. There's murder. There's just people. Okay, they live a lot longer than we might live physically now, but they died. They died. Physical death has come into the world. Now, some people might say, oh, well, it was always going to happen. Maybe death was always meant to happen. It wasn't, maybe it wasn't ever intended that Adam and Eve would live forever and then, and then their children and their children. Maybe death was always going to happen. Well, not according to the word of God. Because we have the account in Genesis 2 and 3, and I've already mentioned that there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 2, you see there is also another tree. There is the tree of life. Um, 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That second one is the one they weren't allowed to eat. Just that one. They could have eaten from the tree of life. In fact, the reason that God gives for, for banishing from the garden is, look, if I don't do that, then you might eat of the tree of life. And you will live forever. Now, he didn't mind them eating from that before. That was okay. At some point, they would have got round to eating from the tree of life. And they would have lived forever. That was part. Otherwise, God wouldn't have put that tree there. So it was part of God's plan that they would live forever. That people would live forever. We can look ahead, actually, in Revelation... Isn't it great having, when you get a story, that you can turn to the back and see how it ends, or how it's going to end? Because it's not happened yet. But we know what's going to happen in the end. In Revelation, the last book in the Bible, chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, God's promising us, the church, that to us, if we overcome, he will give us the right to eat from this tree of life again. The right that Adam had. You can eat from this tree of life until they sinned. And when that point came, when they were tempted and sinned, God says, you've not got that right anymore. No longer can you eat from the tree of life. Death is coming into the world. And hardship and toil and all of the other things that we read about. And that's the way it has been. But that's not what God wanted. That's not what God's plan was. God's plan is still to be fulfilled. And that is, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life. It's going to come back. If, you, if you're still unconvinced about um, God not intending death to be in the world. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. And then he goes on and argues. But, but the point he's making there just is, he's kind of taking it as read, um, sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death came through sin. And therefore, death came to all men. We, death has come to us all through that act. It wasn't intended by God. So, coming back to the argument that I said before, that when people say, if God is so loving, why does he allow pain and suffering? It's not particularly because of free choice. It's because, the world, because sin is in the world. Because we're born sinful. God didn't mean it to happen. He wasn't part of his plan. And actually, he's acted. He has acted to change things. We can't act to change things. He has acted and will continue to act to bring it back to the point that he wanted it to be. His plan will come about. You see, some people might say, well, you know, it's just the infant deaths and things that bother me. No, I think death full stop is, is terrible when it happens. That's what the word says. It wasn't in his plan. You know, you can die when you are ex very old and have lived a great life or whatever. You lived to, 
Debbie, my wife, her granddad died the other year at 90 years old. He'd been married for over 60 years and his wife was in such pain and mourning over it. She didn't just go, oh, well, he's lived a good life. No, there's pain and sadness. Why is that pain and sadness there? Because that is, is common to everyone. Why is it there? Because if it's just a natural part of life, if that's how it was always supposed to be, we shouldn't experience this grieving. We should be, you know, we'd, if we're to believe the evolutionists, if we're to believe the people who say, oh, well, it's all, it's all coming about by, by natural selection, you know, the survival of the fittest, then if it's about the survival of the fittest, then what does it matter? Children die? Oh, well, they were weak. That's all right. Survival of the fittest. It's all part of the plan. We, we don't think that, do we? It's awful. It's awful. We ache with it. And, uh, and when people are, are going through this, and I, I guess in a, in a congregation like this, there's going to be people here who are going through the grieving process and maybe terrible things have happened or maybe people have just died at the end of a, a long life, but there's a real pain mourning and grieving. And the word of God says we're to mourn with those who mourn. We're to to comfort those. We're to to identify with them. Not just say, oh, never mind. It's a terrible thing. But it wasn't ever intended to be like that. We We don't grieve for animals when we see them on TV, wildlife, you know, programs, like David Attenborough things. You know, when you get these, anim- these, these you know, cheetahs running after and killing, uh, killing deer or lions killing wildebeest, we don't mourn for them. We don't grieve for them. They don't seem to be mourning or grieving. It's something that wasn't, you know, if that's part of natural selection, then if it's all about evolution, then that, it shouldn't hurt. It shouldn't matter. But it does. It does because it, we know deep down inside, even those of us, those people who don't believe in God and say, I don't, I don't want anything to do with God. I'm just believing the science. There's something inside of us, deep inside of us, which is saying, no, no, this is not meant to be. It's not meant to be like this. And that's true. It's not. Sometimes people can can live a long life and can be in suffering and pain. And they can start to speak as though death is some sort of friend because they want to escape this pain. And, and you, can, you can see where they're coming from. And, you know, you can't sort of challenge them on it particularly. But, no, let me tell you, don't be fooled. That's a lie from the enemy. Death is not our friend. Death is never our friend. It's our enemy. It's always has been our enemy from day one. And yet, what can we do? What can we do? Well, the better question is what has been done? Because it's already been done. Because Christ Jesus came to die for our sins. He came, he identified with us. Sinful human beings. He was born amongst us. It's this time of year, isn't it, that we think about when Jesus came and was born amongst us. 
in, in humanity. Fully God, yet born in humanity. And he identified with us, sinful humans. And then he died. He died a physical death on the cross. And his soul was separated from fellowship with God. Separated from that relationship that he'd always had with God. He endured ultimate separation from God. The separation that we deserved. The separation that we had coming to us. Just as Adam was separated from God by being banished in the garden. And it's through Jesus' death on the cross that we can receive forgiveness of our sins. And we can be reconciled back to God in our relationship with him. We can know relationship with God in the same way that Adam did and Eve did. That ease of relationship. Knowing God as our heavenly father because of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus' death reversed that separation. 1 Peter and chapter... One outlines just what what was done. One Peter chapter one from verse eighteen. Says For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your from your forefathers. So we had an empty way of life. And it, it wasn't with things that are going to perish that we were redeemed. He said, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. That was how we were redeemed. That was how we were brought back for God. Brought back into a relationship with him through the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. And we might say, we might ask the same question uh, that I I asked in, in Genesis, but we still die. We still die. Jesus' death didn't mean that we don't die physically. Death has come into this world. This is where it's at now. But our soul will live on. Our soul will live on. And here's the good news. And this is why the good news of Jesus doesn't end at the cross. It's not all about being forgiven and having a relationship with God in this life. And then death comes and then it's the end. It's beyond that. Jesus rose from the dead. He was resurrected. And with that resurrection comes the promise that we too will be raised with him. Romans chapter 6 And verse 5 says, If we have been united with him like this in his death, we shall certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead, and we too will be raised from the dead. Yes, our bodies will die, but our soul will live on. And we will immediately be with Christ. That's what will happen when we die. When we die, we will be with Christ. Paul longs for it. He says it's going to be great. In Philippians chapter 1, he, he talks about it. He's, he was, he's living a difficult life. He's being persecuted. He's, he's being shipwrecked. He's being flogged. And he says in chapter 1 of, of um, Philippians and verse 21, he says, 
for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I'm to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to be depart, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's necessary for you that I remain in this body. In other words, he's saying, look, I can tell you about this glorious gospel. I can tell you about this life in Christ. So it's better for you that I endure this life that I'm living now, which is still amazing because I'm in relationship with Christ. To live is Christ. But to die is going to be such gain because the minute I die, I'm going to be with my Lord Jesus. He said it's far better. That's what we've got coming. We're going to a far better place because when we die we will be with God but often we leave the story there often we're satisfied with that we think oh that's it then we will be with Christ but there's far more than that it's not the end of the story to live is Christ to die is better but Jesus will return Jesus will return. And when Jesus returns, we will be reunited with our physical bodies at the resurrection. It won't just be our soul. We will be reunited with our bodies. We will be raised to life as well. First Thessalonians. This is, this is the bit that we, that we often forget. We kind of leave it at this. So some of you might just think, really? That's what happens? Does it? Yeah. That's what the word says. First Thessalonians. And, uh, and chapter 4. I'm sure this Bible that I've borrowed has everything in a different order than my Bible. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. Brothers, this is talking about the coming of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that those, um, lost that, that those who are still alive, who are, are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ, those who are in Christ, those Christians, believers who are dead, will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. We can be encouraged because we will rise. We will rise when Jesus returns and, and sounds the trumpet blast. 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. Similar kind of theme. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35 onwards. Again, talking about this resurrection body. That's the little subtitle in the NIV. It goes, But someone may ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Maybe some of you are thinking that at the moment. How foolish. Oh dear. Um, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you don't plant the body that will be, but just a seed. Perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. 
Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and the stars differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It will die. It is raised imperishable. It won't die. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. We know that, don't we? But it's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body. It's raised in a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, so there's also a spiritual body. So it's written. The first man, Adam, became a a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual didn't come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. Um, And and it it, it goes on and talks about uh, the spiritual bodies that will be be raised. And then at the end, in verse um, 54... It says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Then it will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin in the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I hope you followed all that. It was, there's quite a lot there. In other words, we will be raised with Jesus and that will be the end of death. We won't be just in some invisible heaven, sort of floating about on clouds. You know, it's, we, the enemy, enemy, that devil lying to us. It's going to be boring in heaven. How many has heard that lie? It's going to be boring in heaven. It's going to be better on earth. It's going to be boring in heaven. We think it. No, it's not. We are going to be with Christ. And it's not as though we're just going to be sort of disembodied, just some sort of spiritual thing floating about that we can't see. Or who's that? I don't know. I can't recognize them. Well, when Jesus returns, we'll have bodies. Of course, we'll recognize each other. Of course, we'll know who, everyone, who people are. But the enemy will, will choose to lie to us. We'll have real bodies. And there'll be similarities with life today. It will be a physical universe. It'll be a, it won't just be floating. It won't be just in the air, in clouds. There'll be a physical universe. There'll be some similarities to life. But I'll tell you what, there won't be. There won't be sin. There won't be evil. There won't be suffering. And there won't be pain. That's what we see right at the end of the, of the word. The very, I think the very, no, the next to last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, um, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he'll live with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Does it sound like something? Does it sound like Genesis early on before the sin? He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is what will happen. We will be with Jesus again. Jesus has turned it all around. He's reversed it, reversed the effects 
of sin, reverse the effects of Genesis and chapter 3, and we will be with him again in a new heaven and earth. What does it mean for us? And I'm concluding with this. What does it mean for each of us? Well, it means that if we are believers, if we are Christians, if we follow Jesus in our lives and have given our lives to him and have turned away from our sin and to God, trusting solely, solely in Jesus' death and resurrection, then we will have a glorious eternity ahead of us. And yes, we will suffer in this world. And yes, we will face the awfulness of death and, and suffering and sadness. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17 says that these are momentary. These troubles and sufferings are light and momentary. Even though they're very real to us now, but they'll pass. And we'll have an eternity where we will be with Jesus. A glorious eternity. That's the good news for those who are in Christ. But what about those who don't know Christ? What about for those who aren't in Christ? Well, the word says that once people outside of God, outside of Christ die, that there are no more chances. There's no more chances. We don't get a chance to die and our soul live on and just think, our soul will live on, but we don't get a chance to, to think, oh, gosh, you know, I was wrong. Maybe I need to repent now before the Lord returns and judges me. No. Your chance will have gone. Jesus will return. Judgment will come. And there's only that inevitability ahead. People who say, oh, I believe that life will just end and that will be it and it'll be, it'll be like going to sleep. That's the enemy speaking. Let me tell you, don't believe the lie. You are comforting yourself with a fairy tale. The word of God says something very different. And we can be nervous. Those of us who preach can be nervous of, 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 of stories of, of hellfire and brimstone preachers who just scare people into the church. But, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a reality here which we cannot avoid. When we die, we will face, if we're not in Christ, we will face separation from God for eternity. And separation from anything good in the world. It will be a reversal of Revelation 4. You know, those who are in Christ will know no more mourning or no more tears or no more suffering, no more pain, no more sickness. But the reverse of that is true for those who are separated for eternity from Christ. Luke and chapter 13 spells that out. Let's hear this as a warning. Luke and chapter 13, verse 22. Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said, make every effort. To enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try and enter and won't be able to. And once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. And then you'll say, we ate and drank with you and taught in our streets. But he'll reply, I don't know you. Or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. 
and there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out, people will come from east and west and north and south and take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, those who are last will be first and first will be last. He's saying very clearly, make every effort now to respond to the word. Because there's going to be a time coming when the door will shut and you will, th- you will suddenly realize my physical body has died, but it's not the end. I was wrong. And you will beg and you will plead and you will say, let me in, open the door. I want to be with you. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. You didn't come and know me. We were separated. We were separated because of the sin of Adam. And you never came and received the reconciliation through Jesus. And I don't know you now. And you'll say, but, but we, we know about you. We came to church. We came to carol services. We ate. We, we danced. We, we met Christians. Some of our friends were Christians. And he will say, I never knew you. I don't know you. Away from me. And it says there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. How awful. Death brings such sorrow and anguish now. But it's nothing compared to what will come for those outside of Christ. So as we finish this morning, I urge you, if you do not know Christ, will you respond to his word today while you can? Because right now the door is open. And you can respond to know this Lord Jesus and have an eternity with him where death is finally defeated. Oh, that we would all be able to declare because we're there on that last day. Where, oh, death is your victory. Where, oh, death is your sting. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. If the band want to come up, it'd be good just to worship in a moment. Father God, I praise you, Lord, for your amazing love for us, that you have